The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Amen. Father, we're just so grateful for the word of God about your son, Jesus. There's life, there's forgiveness, there's justification, redemption. There's adoption to be your children. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the beauty of your grace, the greatness of your mercy, and the wonders of your love. Father, help us to love Jesus and be compelled to follow him as our king and our priest. In Jesus' name, all God's people said amen. If you look at your psalm, Psalm 110, just before it says, the Lord says to my Lord, it says, of David, a psalm. Or your Bible might say a psalm of David. That's called a superscription, which means it's outside of the psalm, but yet it is contained within the word of God. So what I want to do is give you a little bit of history about the psalms and also share with you what a psalm is. Um, Hopefully it'll be helpful for you this morning, not just with my sermon, but with all the sermons that you'll hear this summer. Uh, So the Psalms, uh, they're contained in one book. There's 150 of them, right? Um, And it's divided, actually, if you look look in your Bible and in Psalms, you'll see that Psalms are actually divided further down, not just by, by the Psalm numbers, but by books. For example... Psalms 1 through 42, 42 Pastor Jahil preached last week. If you can turn over to, pay, um, to Psalm 42, you'll see above 42 it says book 2. Do you see that? Yes? yes? yes. Okay. So what I want you to see is that Psalms, although we receive it as one book, also has five books within it. Did any of you guys know that? That's kind of interesting. Okay. Oh, someone over there did. Okay. So the Psalms were written over 800 years. A long, long time. Probably the earliest Psalm is Psalm 90, which is a Psalm of Moses. Um, some Psalms may have been written four or 500 years before Christ. So that's a span of a very long time. And Just to remind you a little bit of Israel's history, there was a point when um, they were taken into exile. They were brought into captivity by a very powerful nation called Babylon. And they were in captivity for 70 years. And um, the Lord rose up a king named Cyrus, who was a Persian king. And Cyrus, um, he basically, he rebelled against uh, the Babylonian king. And in the process, he decided, to, he became a great world leader. Um, he set lots of nations free. He said, rather than having all these people slaves, let them reconstitute their countries and I'll get taxes from them. And so when you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, um, this is about 20 years after Cyrus has basically come to rule, and he sends Jewish people back to Israel and Nehemiah, okay? 
So in this intervening period of 70 years, the Babylonians had really destroyed the temple. Uh, the Jewish folks, they, they would worship in a temple there in Jerusalem. So when they came back, they went about rebuilding the temple. You can read that story in Ezra and Nehemiah. And one of the things they decided was, as they were rebuilding the temple, this is, we need to sing to our Lord. We've been in captivity because of our sins, and God has been so gracious to bring us back. This isn't just, oh, just a fact. This is something we need to sing about. So they looked through their history, and they started collecting and compiling these psalms and ordering them in five books. Um, some people think that there's order in five books because, as you remember, the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, five books of the law. So dividing into five books, and there's some themes that you can see in each of these books within Psalms. It's, it's kind of a representation as well. Or God gives us the law in five books. Let us celebrate in five books. Okay? Uh, the word Psalms means song. Um, it's... it's it, not, all the, not all the psalms are necessarily songs. Some of them are poetry. Do we have any poetry and music lovers here? Okay. Amen. I, there you go. That's right. And so the psalms are, are a collection of poetry and hymns, but not just any hymns and poetry. They are sacred psalms and poetry. And by sacred, I mean holy or, or set apart by God. The Psalms themselves were written by many folks. David is attributed to 73 in the Psalms himself. There's another three Psalms that are identified by David in the New Testament. The Sons of Korah, um, the Psalm that Pastor Jehiel preached last week was from Sons of Korah. Um, and there's other writers as well throughout the Psalms. And some Psalms have no, no identifiable author whatsoever. So these psalms are meant for us to not just read as doctrine, but to receive as art given to us by God. Because the psalms are themselves the word of God, even though penned by David and others as artistic works to be sung initially in temple worship. That, that was the primary purpose. And there's different kinds of psalms, okay? So when most people think psalms, they think celebration, right? And there's a great many hymns within Psalms. Um, you can think of Psalm 100, Psalm 102, 103, Bless the Lord, O My Soul. You know, there's lots of Psalms like that. And Psalms of lament or sadness, expressing depression. Some of those Psalms might be from an individual expressing why, Lord, or how long, Lord, okay? And then there are Psalms of thanksgiving, and there's psalms that mimic in some ways some of the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. They're like wisdom literature. And there's psalms that kind of emulate a celebration of the law, like Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible. So I'm curious, um, anyone got some favorite psalms here? Uh, let me hear some of those favorite psalms you have. 119, 91. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So that encourages me because the Psalms don't just belong to the Jewish people to whom they were originally written, but they're for God's people. And in Christ Jesus, we are the new Israel and the Psalms are for us. Okay. So now let's take a look at our Psalm of study this morning, which is Psalm 110. 
We're going to kind of move through it a little bit slowly. I'm going to walk you through it and help you think about it. And then we're going to look at some New Testament um, passages that are connected to this psalm and other passages in the Old Testament as well. Okay, so as I, note, as I pointed out before, this psalm has a subscript of David, a psalm, or a psalm of David, right before you get to the Lord, says to my Lord. So the first thing I want to say is, uh, ask is, what is a psalm? And I've answered that question for you guys, hopefully. And it's written by David. Now, I know a lot of you guys are, have been believers for a while, but not all of you are, have been Christians for a while, and there might be some visitors. So I want to take a little bit of time to actually share who David is, Okay. So um, you guys may remember, or hopefully most of you know the story about how God graciously delivered the Jewish people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt, right? And so they were brought out by Moses, and then they were led into the promised land by Joshua. And then after Joshua died, there was a series of judges. And these were essentially leaders, okay? Um, one thing to understand about Israel at that particular time, it, it wouldn't be considered like a geopolitical nation like our country is, right? It would be more like a, um, a confederation, um, or not a confederation, a federation of, of clans together, like named after the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And they would come together for worship, and they would come together for war. But other than that, they essentially governed themselves from within, Okay. But they were periodically, God would raise up judges who would lead them into battle and help them with disputes, okay? So there was a period of time in judges, after judges, and um, the people came to a prophet named Samuel, and you can look in 1 Samuel chapter 8 if you'd like to. So Samuel, he's a prophet. He's like in this line of judges. And as he grows old, um, the sons of Israel's leaders say, you know, we want a king. We don't want to be ruled by God anymore because God was ruling his people through judges. We want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And Samuel says, um, uh, you know, if you have a king, he's going to claim, your, he's going to claim his rights. He's going to take your children and put them in your, in, in your armies. He's going to tax you and he's going to take your daughters and make them be cooks and bakers, Okay. But still, they're like, uh, uh, verse 19, no, we want a king over us. Then we would be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So anyway, God decides, let them have what they want. It's a sad thing to be given over to what you want sometimes. So Samuel, um, by God's leading, chooses a man named Saul. Not to be confused with the Saul of the New Testament, uh, but the Saul of the Old Testament. And he is the first king. And this guy is very tall. In fact, he's the tallest of everyone in Israel. And he looks good. He's very handsome. So they give him exactly what they want. You want a king who's good looking and strong? Well, here you go. The problem with Saul was, is as good as he looked, there was some deficits in his character. And that had some impact upon, upon, upon the nation. And so you'll see why this is relevant as we look through the, our Psalm 110. In Psalm, 1 Samuel chapter 13, there's an issue with, um, with Saul wanting to go to war. He's going to war against the Philistines uh, with his troops. 
And the practice at that particular time was for kings basically to get instructions from one of the prophets. Should I go up or shouldn't I go up? And um, so he was, waiting for, he was waiting for the prophet to come. And um, while he was waiting, he was like, the, the, the crush of the Philistines was pressing up against him. And so he, he was basically afraid that he was going to be killed. He says, well, you know what? Maybe I should just give an offering to God myself. Let me make a sacrifice to God. Seems like a good idea, right? You want an answer from God, you make a sacrifice to God, and perhaps he'll speak to you. The problem is, is that in the law of Moses, only certain people are allowed to make offerings. The priests. And there was one particular offering that only the high priest could do once a year. So Saul, out of convenience, decides to make a sacrifice to God, violating the law of God, okay? He was a king. He had no right to be a priest. You had to be descended from Levi to be a priest, and you had to be a descendant of Aaron in particular to be a high priest, okay? So he takes on a priestly role, and God says to him um, um, through, through Samuel, uh, the kingdom's coming away from you the Lord could have established your kingdom forever, but you have crossed the line. You have broken God's law. You cannot do what you did. So Saul begs, but to no avail. And Saul makes another mistake as a king when in a battle in 1 Samuel chapter 15 against the Malachites. The Malachites, if you guys remember in, in Exodus um, just as the Israelites were coming out of captivity to Egypt, they're freshly out. They're, they're slaves. They haven't gone too far. The Amalekites look at them and say, you know what? This is easy pickings. And they attack the Israelites. And so the Lord leads them to win the, leads the, the Israelites to win the battle and says, I'm going to wipe the Amalekites out. You just watch and see. Okay? So here there's an opportunity in first chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 15 for Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. He doesn't do it, and the Lord strips, strips, him of, strips him of being king, but not immediately. He says, I'm going to take, take the kingdom away from you and give it to someone else who will fear me, who will reverence me. Okay? So then you go on a couple of chapters later, um, chapter 16, he, Samuel the prophet anoints David to be the king. And and the reason I'm going all this is so that you can see this process of how God gets to David, okay? And so David is a man after God's own heart. That's what the scripture says. He loves God. He's a shepherd as a youth. He's a humble kid. Um, he, he's gifted in music. He loves the Lord. He trusts in God's name. And you may remember the story of David and Goliath. As a kid, as a teenager, says, who is this Philistine to come against our God? And he trusts in God, and he believes in God. And he starts serving Saul and leading many, many victories and many, many battles. And Saul tries to kill him, and David has opportunity to kill Saul because everyone loves him, and he would have been king like that. But he doesn't do that. He continues to just 
walk humble with a boss that wants to kill him. That's amazing. <laughs> literally wants to kill him, not figuratively, but literally wants to kill him. And he ends up running for his life, as you guys know the story. And um, there comes a point, if you go to the end of 1 Samuel, I don't want to give too much history because there's so much to say, my goodness. At the end of, at the end of, Sam, at the end of 1 Samuel, Samuel is pressed around, he's pressed again in a battle. And rather, rather than um, be captured and be mocked, he kills himself. He just kills him, so he takes his life. And so um, what happens at that particular point is that the people of Israel, if you go over to second Israel, then anoint David to be the king of Judah. And that's a portion of the kingdom. That's a southern kingdom. And if you flip over to second Samuel chapter 5, then David becomes king over all of Israel. And then when you come to second Samuel chapter 7, David is so in love with God because he's vanquished all of his enemies and raised up his king. And he's like, I want to make a temple for you. But God sends the, the prophet Nathan to him and says, go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in the house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Whenever I move with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not build me, built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, appointed you a ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies before you. Now I'll make your name great, like the names of all the greatest men on earth. And I'll provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not press them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish a kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings, but my love will never be taken from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house, this is God speaking to David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Amen. So this is an amazing thing. And this is right after David, he's captured Jerusalem. So when he starts off his kingdom in Judah, he's in a city called Hebron. And then he goes up to, he goes up to what's now Jerusalem and he fights against the Jebusites and takes it over. And so this whole scene is right after this. And that area, by the way, where he took over from the Jebusites is called Zion, which is important for our understanding of the psalm this morning. Okay, so that's who David is. Are you with me? Okay. So this is the psalm of David. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, so who's speaking here? 
It's David. David is the one speaking here. Now, if you look in your Bibles, you see the Lord. Do you see how it's all in capital letters? L-O-R-D, all caps. And then it says, the Lord says to my Lord, and it's all lowercase. Do you see that? So in the English, that's what we see. But underneath of these are the Hebrew words that are a little bit different in meaning, okay? So when you see Lord in all caps, and when that name is said, it sounds like I am, okay? And this is the name that God gave to Moses when Moses, when God sent Moses to set the Jewish people free from the Egyptians. And Moses is like, well, who should I tell the leaders of Israel sent me? Tell them I am that I am sent you. Okay? So this is the name that God gave to the, to the, the Jewish people when he was going to set them free. So this is a covenant name. He sets them free and they follow him as the Lord. I am that I am. I'm self-existent. There's no one like me. I am that I am. Okay. So when Psalm 10 start, 110 starts with the Lord says, we're talking about that God. The God that set the Jewish people free. Okay. And it says, the Lord says to my Lord. So David is saying, the Lord says to my Lord. Who is he talking about? It's interesting. Let's find out. (laughs) He says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this is God speaking to, this is the Lord speaking to David's Lord and saying, sit at my right hand. So God is saying, sit at my right hand to this figure. Sit at my right hand. So in this culture, at the right hand of a king was a place of tremendous honor, okay? You probably have heard the expression, my right-hand man, my right-hand woman, my, my right hand. However you want to say that, you've heard that expression. That's the place of honor. That's someone you trust completely, and they can be an agent for you. The interesting thing about this is that when it says, the Lord says to my Lord, that second Lord is always, always used to refer to a human being. So the Lord is saying to a human being, like a master or a lord or a king, something like that, human, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. God is saying to a man, sit beside me. I can't do that (laughs) on my own, okay? God is a jealous God. He has no other gods before him. Yet here in this psalm, David has a vision of the Lord speaking, the Lord God Almighty, God speaking to a human king, sit at my right hand. And why does he want him to do that? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Wow. God is 
has given this man so much honor, he's basically saying, your enemies are my enemies. We're completely aligned. There's no separation here. And notice the brutality of it. I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This gives the image of a conquering king with his foot on the necks of his enemies. Okay? So much as he conquered them, so much as he beaten them down, that he's stepping on his enemies. And God says, I will do this for you. Who is this? Who is this man? Well, the Jewish people, they identify this as a messianic psalm, a psalm pointing forward to the Messiah. If you would, turn over with it, keep, your, keep a finger or something there in, in Psalm 110, but turn over with me to Mark chapter 12. This is, a, just, this is within a week before Jesus is crucified. Um, people have been trying to trick Jesus. He's in the temple grounds. Some people try to um, trick him about taxation. Some people about, try to trick him up, trip him up on doctrine, whether there's a resurrection. And some people are trying to trip him up about what's the greatest commandment. And then Jesus turns the tables and he looks at the people that have been questioning him and turns the tables on them. And he says... Verse 35 of chapter 12, when Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that Moses is the son of David? Well, the scriptures do say that the Messiah is a descendant of David, right? David himself, verse 36, David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus is now saying, are you sure that this man is just the son of David? Are you sure that's all you can conceive of him as him being just a descendant of David? The large crowd listened to him with delight. What Jesus is doing here is he's hinting at the fact that the Messiah is God's son. For time, I won't, I, won't, I won't cover it here, but in Mark 12, there's a parable of the talents where Jesus hints at this very fact that the Messiah is God's son. And in chapter 14, when he's being questioned by the chief priest, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? That is, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus identifies... This man in Psalm 110, 
as the Messiah. Jesus identifies this man in Psalm 110 as himself. Psalm 110, like all the Psalms really, but this one's so crystal clear, is about Jesus. The Lord God Almighty said to Jesus, who from human descent was a descendant from David, but who also was the eternal Son of God, made flesh and sent into the world. And he says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, I'm sure David, in his imagination, could have pictured all that, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to how it's interpreted in the New Testament. Look with me at verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. That's God. Will extend your mighty scepter. That is Messiah. Your scepter, your mighty scepter from Zion. A scepter is a symbol of authority, okay? It's a symbol of authority, but the authority that the Messiah has isn't just symbolic, it's real. The Lord will extend his authority from Zion, that is Jerusalem, so we know it's a Davidic king being spoken of, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So God says to this man, this Messiah, the Lord Jesus, rule in the midst of your enemies. Whatever you think of Jesus, don't limit to him to just being a teacher. He is the Messiah. He is the king. And like all kings, he's not a solitary figure. Verse 3. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. His troops aren't scared. His troops aren't reluctant. His troops are willing on the day of battle. And we're going to talk about what that day of battle is in a little bit. And they are arrayed in holy splendor, or some translations may say clothed in holy garments. So not only willing and almost jumping at it, but they're clothed in holiness. So there's something unique about these truths. And he says, your young men will come to you. I'm not a young guy anymore, okay? So if someone calls me to battle, I'm going to be like shuffling along. But these are young men who are ready to go. And then he used a poetic expression, like dew from the morning's womb. That's so pretty. I remember as a child, sometimes waking up, and I don't know why I don't see it in the city now, but growing up in Silver Spring, wake up and the grass, there's all these droplets all over it. Where did it come from? <laughs> I'd ask my mom. She'd say, it's dew. <laughs> and it appears there in the morning, uh, And that's what these soldiers are like. When the king calls for his, for his troops, they appear. Amen. Like dew from the morning's womb. It's like the morning has a womb. It's like from the beginning of the day. There's no lateness to their arrival. Amen. His troops, the king's troops, are holy, ready, and they are there early and ready to go on the day of his battle. Amen.
So one thing to see is that this king is going to be involved in warfare. He's going to be involved in battles, skirmishes, and fights. And one thing we know from looking at verse 1 very clearly is he's going to win. Sit at my right hand until I make your footstools and make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This king and his troops, because God declared it, they're going to win. Amen. We will come back to some of this. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Is there anyone here named Melchizedek? No. (laughs) Melchizedek in the Bible is a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, he's only seen twice. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 14? I'm going to summarize some of this for you guys. Oh my goodness. Abraham, whose name is Abram at, that, at this point in history, he's left, he's left Ur of Chaldees. Um, his nephew Lot is along with him. And in chapter 13 of Genesis, um, Abraham's flocks and Lot's flocks are getting pretty large. And there's like little, I guess, there's a little tension because there's not enough room, and they separate. And you can read about that in chapter 13, the details of that. And so in chapter 14, when we come to it, there is a king named Ketaleomer. And King King Ketaleomer, with three other kings, and I want you to understand what these kings are about. They're essentially like mayors of towns. They're not like they're not like the king or queen of England or the king of Ethiopia over an entire country, okay? They're kings over their cities. Some of them might be walled, some of them might not be walled. So these kings, led by Kedi Elmar, uh, they're from the north, and what they do is they basically pillage. They go down, they, they go down south through Israel. And you can read, they, they're attacking folks, They're taking people captive as they're moving down south. And it's basically a raiding party, okay? And what happens is that Abraham's nephew, Lot, who's living in Sodom, and Sodom is basically attacked, four kings against five kings, because the king of Sodom and four other kings, they line up against Kedilamar, and they have a fight, and they lose, okay? And that process, Kedilamar... He takes Sodom's captive. He takes their, their, their money. He takes, probably takes some people for slaves. And in the process, he captures Lot. And so there's a man that escapes this and finds Abraham, or Abram. And Abraham at the time was living near the great trees of Mamre. And so 
And, and Mamre, um, uh, Mamre also had some other friends, uh, brother, Eskel, and Anner. So it's Mamre, Eskel, and Anner. So Abraham, he's hanging out with these three other men who likely were kings themselves or they were powerful nomads. And so this man comes and tells Abraham, your, your, your nephew, he's been, he's been captured. And so Abraham and his three friends and their troops, 318 troops, run up north. And so Kenny Larimer and his troops, they've got, they've got spoil, okay? They've got people they've captured. So they're probably moving fairly slow. And so Abraham and his crew catches up, up to them and he beats them. And he gets, and he gets, he gets his, his nephew Lot back. Amen. Okay, so if you could look at verse 17. I'm sorry, chapter 14. Genesis 14, verse 17. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedilomar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom, because he was one of the kings that was defeated, came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, in the king's valley. So I want you to just remember this, because there's like an interruption in this. Verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. This is a good man. He believes in God, the creator. He believes that God is higher than all other gods. And he comes out to Abram, and Abram has been fighting, so he and his troops may be very much hungry and famished. So he, he comes and he brings them wine and bread. So he, he ministers to their physical needs, and then he blesses him. And then Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. Wow. So then come down to verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. And this would have been the practice of your day. If your, if your city had been captured and you were set free, you would let, let whoever rescued you keep your stuff, but give the people back. So that was the standard of the day. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, with a raised hand, I've sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Do you know, you, know, you recognize those names? Those are the names that... Uh, Melchizedek used, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Amen. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and share what belongs to the men that went with me, to Anner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Okay, so you have a very clear scene. I'm hoping you guys are following it. Four kings against five kings. The four kings beat the five kings. That takes the city of Sodom and Lot. Abram hears about it, goes, beats, beats up Kedil Amar and his, and his kings with him, rescues Sodom, rescues Lot. And so Sodom is coming out. The king of Sodom is coming out to do what's supposed to. You know, let me have my people back. You can have my stuff. And in the middle of this conversation, Melchizedek comes through. And Melchizedek is identified as both a king and as a priest. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought up bread and wine. 
and he was a priest of God Most High. Now, remember when I was talking to you before about how Saul couldn't be a priest and how he was rejected? Well, this is before the law. There's no law involved at all. So he is, he is literally a king and a priest. And the name Melchizedek, as we read in, in, in Hebrews chapter 7, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Isn't that interesting? And he's the king of Salem. And that name Salem means peace. And in that region, there was a lot of Salems, and that Salem might have, been, have actually been Jerusalem. Okay? So Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace, perhaps king of Jerusalem, comes to Abraham to bless him. And if you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. I'll start at verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He made Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. No new information so far. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and king of Salem means king of peace. Now, here's what's interesting here. It says, verse 3, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Huh. What do you make of that? Why would the writer say without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever? Well, if you go back in Genesis, and you can look this up in your, time, in your spare time, Genesis has another number of significant genealogies. In chapter 5, it gives a genealogy from Abraham all the way down to Noah. And then in chapter 10, it gives what's called the Table of Nations. It refers to Noah and his three sons and all the princes and kings and leaders and how those nations spread across the earth. So in Genesis, anybody who is anybody has a genealogy. There's someone's son, there's someone's father. They're not disconnected. That's how they related in that culture, right? It, it, from my last name is Noble. From my, is there anyone else in this room named Noble? You might say, oh, there's a connection there. You don't have people of significance listed in, those, in that culture without any kind of connection whatsoever. So the, the imagination is captured by David, the author, in chapter 110, of Psalm 110, when he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are priests forever in the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110. He has this picture in his mind, the Lord, David, he has this prophetic vision of a king who God is going to say, sit at my right hand and make my enemies until I make your enemies a footstool on your feet. And he also has a vision also of the Lord saying to the same person, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Interesting. So now this when Abraham met Melchizedek, this was before Moses and the law, 
Okay? And if you remember in the law, it says you can't have a king priest. And we read earlier about how Saul was rejected as king for trying to be a priest. But now David, he has this vision that one day there will be a king and a priest. A king that will have troops and a king that will win. And a priest that will be forever in the order of Melchizedek. So now if you study Hebrews chapter 7... What you find out is that the priest had term limits. They died. (laughs) So the priesthood was always limited. So if you needed to come before God, if you needed to have a relationship with God and have that intermediary between you and God who would offer up those offerings prescribed in the law, and your priest died, you had to go to their son or to another priest. And what Hebrews chapter 7 says is that Jesus is better than the priest of Levi because they all die. Okay? His life is indestructible. There's no end to him. And so the writer of Hebrews has a, and also David has a little poetry in him like, wait a second, Melchizedek was a priest of Jerusalem. He was a king priest. And his priesthood is a priesthood that is for Priesthood could be forever. So what we're looking forward to then is the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. If you go to Acts chapter 2, and some of you guys are in that study on Thursdays, Pastor Thabiti took us through the day of Pentecost. And Peter, he stands up and he says, the patriarch David, he died. But Jesus, he's risen from the dead and he's ascended to the right hand of God. Peter quotes this verse to refer to Jesus as a king. If you would, turn, look at Psalm 110, verse 5. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. I'm going to share with you right now. That connects with the day of battle in verse 3. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. So what we have here is God at this man's right hand crushing kings and judging nations and heaping up the dead. So as a king, he draws troops that gladly follow him. And as a king priest, he's going to judge the nations. Every man, woman, and child will stand before God to be judged. Jesus in John chapter 5 says, teaches clearly that the Father has given the Son the authority to judge so that all people would honor the Son even as they honor the Father. All judgment has been placed into Jesus' hands. So now let's review here this psalm. 
We have David having two visions, essentially. One where God says to a man who we've identified as Jesus, his enemies will be the footstool of his feet and willing troops. And then he identifies him as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then he identifies him as the one who's going to bring about judgment. So what should we say about all these things, uh, brothers and sisters? What should we say? Jesus Christ is not dead. He is risen from the dead, witnessed by the apostles, ascended to the right hand of God, where he waits for that day, the day of battle, the day of his wrath. There is a day coming of the wrath of God. If you ignore this and you store up wrath against yourself by being unrepentant and stubborn, you will face God's righteous judgment without mercy. But the good news, and it's very, very good, is that God has set up a mediator between humanity and himself. He's not like those priests that died. He's like Melchizedek without any beginning or end. And as a priest, he was holy and perfect. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4.14 Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our, our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He's a holy priest. Verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace, which is a throne where the king priest is, with confidence, with faith, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, my God. First, he says, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not desire, nor were you pleased with them. 
though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. Every priest needs a sacrifice. The priests before, they sacrificed goats and lambs and bulls. And the fact that they were ineffective is demonstrated by the, by the fact that they had to keep on doing it again and again and again. But the Word of God, the Son of God, entered into the world in human flesh, demonstrated his authority. It wasn't political. But he cast out demons, he healed the sick, he quelled storms, he multiplied loaves and fishes, and he said, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he walked to the cross, and and you have to imagine to yourself, he's walking towards Jerusalem, that's the capital, he's walking to the capital city to take his throne. But his throne is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. That is his throne. It is there he disarms the powers. It's there that all the charges against you and you and you and me were nailed to the cross. He defeated death in his death when he rose from the dead so that we could be set free from Satan's power. He is king and he is priest. He didn't come to be served like the kings of this world. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And for you, if you will believe, your sins will be wiped away. You will be forgiven of your sins. You will be declared righteous. All the stuff you have done in the dark that brings about God's wrath completely appeased and satisfied or propitiated in the work of Christ on the cross. You will be made a son or daughter of of the Most High God if you will believe in this king and this priest. And if you are in Christ and you believe in Christ Jesus, You're called to follow him as a troop, as a soldier, and to engage in the battle. To my shame, I've drifted years in my Christian faith. Thank God for his mercy. His hand won't let go. But consider the resources that God has given us to fight. His word. Get the dust off your Bible. 
The word of God is the sword of the spirit. When the Lord Jesus faced Satan in the wilderness, if he, the son of God, fought by the word of God, you know you need to do the same. If you're not the best reader, get an audio track. Get an audio app. If you don't have access to technology, join a Bible study. Hannah Baker will tell you about all the Bible studies. <laughs> Pastor Dennis, Pastor Tabidi are giving summer Bible studies in their homes, I believe. Then there's a Thursday night Bible study at the house. The Word of God. Jesus said to, his, to people who were believing in him in, in John chapter 8, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The salvation that we have is once for all in one sense, but in another sense, it's progressive. God wants to conform each of us to be like his son. His son on this earth suffered and fought dealing with temptation. And unlike him, we have resisted temptation to the point of shedding blood. Fight the fight of faith. Put on the whole armor of God. Don't leave home without your shield of faith your helmet of salvation, your buckle of truth, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Paul writes about his struggle as a Christian with sin in Romans chapter 7. He says, this law of sin is with me. When I want to do good, it's right there with me. Who will set me free from this body of death? And he praises God. We're set free from the power of the rule. The presence is still there. You know that. The presence of sin is still there, but you're set free from its power. And by the Spirit, you must put it to death. The Spirit isn't, the Spirit has hostility towards the flesh, and the flesh has hostility towards the Spirit. Did I get that right? You must fight using God's word. And you must watch and pray. Watch is a military term. Be alert. Watch and pray. Go to your heavenly father and say, Father, deliver me from the evil one. Keep me from temptations. Do you think you will bear fruit of righteousness without prayer? Jesus is the true vine, and and you are the branches, and apart from him, you will bear no fruit. Brothers and sisters, we will not bear fruit unless we depend upon our Father. Consider this fellowship that we have with God the Father and with his Son. It's a gift. Engage in the battle against the world. Do not love the world. 
James says that love for the world is enmity or hostility against God. And you know the devil is your enemy. He comes to steal and kill and destroy and tempt and deceive and crush and bite. But in Christ Jesus, we overcome. We overcome by the word of our testimony. We overcome by the very word of God. And not just any old word, but the word of the cross. When you see the cross, you see how much God hates sin. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness, ungodliness and wickedness and unrighteousness by people who should know better. He hates sin so much that he sent his son to be crucified. That's how much he hates sin. So when you are tempted by your ego to be angry or selfish, when you are tempted to be lustful for material things, when you are tempted to be lustful in your physical passions, consider the cross. Consider the hatred God has for sin and evil. And then consider the great love of God when you look at the cross. That grace of the Lord Jesus as a priest who offered himself and a father who offered him son. The Lord says to my Lord, my Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops, that's you, who will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, made holy by the blood of Jesus. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. In Christ Jesus, we've been born again and made new. We're just beginning this thing called eternal life. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So he's always able to intercede for us. We can always come to us, him in our time of need and find mercy and grace. The Lord, is, the Lord is at his right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. A day is coming. Believe and repent. And he will drink up from a brook along the way. And so he will lift his head high. The Lord Jesus, our King and Priest, we bless you and we love you so much. Fill us with a vision of your greatness as the Lord with authority over all the heavens and the earth. You are the giver of life and the judge. You're our life. Father, deliver us and protect us from the evil one and make us one. Our fight isn't just individual, but as but a church, 
Let us not give away to dissension and division. And Father, make us willing, Lord God, to take the gospel to our neighbors and turn those enemies into troops like dew in the morning. They suddenly appear. The gospel is heard by your enemies and they become your soldiers. Grace and peace to you all. Amen.